I invite you to turn to, again, to the book of Genesis, chapter 22, and I'm going to read uh, verses 16 to 18. Genesis chapter 22, and I'm going to read the Lord's solemn declaration to Abraham in verses 16 to 18. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your holy word by which we are able to know you and your will for our lives. Father, I pray that your words would dwell richly in our hearts and transform our lives and encourage us that we might be your faithful people. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who were here last week or heard last week's sermon, you know that we pondered these same verses last week. The lesson that I emphasized in the previous sermon was that by God's gracious design, Abraham's obedience was instrumental in God's plan to fulfill his promises to Abraham. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Our practical obedience is the pathway into the fulfillment of God's promises to us. Of course, we must remember how obedience fits into the larger picture of the Christian life. We are forgiven, justified, reconciled to God by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, all of which, that, all of that unfailingly generates a lifetime of ongoing transformation and increasing obedience, heartfelt obedience to God's Word, and this heartfelt obedience is the necessary and God-appointed pathway to final glorification, resurrection, and eternal fellowship with the Father. When Jesus inaugurated the new covenant through His blood, He secured all of this for His chosen people. There's a disturbance. Um, Okay, so Genesis 22 verses 16 to 18 shines the spotlight on on, Abraham. the role of Abraham's obedience, and that's what we focused on last week. The focus of today's sermon is the fact that the Lord's promises to Abraham are are oriented to the future, 
to Abraham's offspring in the future. The Lord declares four promises to Abraham in verses 17 and 18. The first promise is, I will surely bless you. The final three promises all relate to Abraham's offspring. I will surely multiply your offspring. Abraham's offspring will be too numerous to count. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Also verse 17, Abraham's offspring will be triumphant. That's why I've titled today's sermon, The Triumph of Abraham's Offspring. And verse 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Abraham's offspring will bring the blessing of God to the whole world. The phrase, your offspring, invites and requires Abraham to look forward into the distant future. Abraham must continue to trust the Lord, specifically to trust the Lord to keep his promises to Abraham by fulfilling those promises to and through Abraham's offspring after Abraham is dead. So now it is time to get into the substance of the Lord's promises regarding Abraham's offspring. And by the way, this, this series on Genesis has been so instructive because hopefully you're finding that as, we, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, it's really helping us to understand how the whole Bible is put together because the book of Genesis gives us foundational anchor points that get developed and worked out throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so as we, as we ponder these things, we're really seeing how the, the, the pattern of teaching that God has given us in His Word. The Hebrew word translated offspring is Zerah. It can be translated offspring. It can also be translated seed. Zerah has to do with the capacity to be fruitful and multiply. God has put in living, living beings the capacity to reproduce and generate offspring. In fact, the first occurrence of this word is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. Even though plants and fruit trees are not considered living creatures, they still function according to the, the principles of vitality and reproduction. The living creatures of land, sky, and sea were created to multiply, as Genesis 1 makes clear, and God's very first instruction to mankind was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. From Genesis 4 onward, we learn that mankind is indeed generating numerous offspring. Cain's descendants in chapter 4, Adam's descendants through Seth in chapter 5, Noah's descendants through Japheth, Ham, and Shem in chapters 10 and 11, Noah, uh, Noah's descendants through Shem eventually got us to Terah and Terah's son Abraham in chapter 11, verses 24 to 32. Abram, whose name God changed to Abraham has been the focus of Genesis chapters 12 through 22. God's promise to Abraham and to his seed came early in chapter 12, verse 7. To your offspring, 
I will give this land. And God's promises concerning Abraham's offspring has continued in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 21. An essential part of Abraham's walk with God was trusting God to accomplish great things in and through his seed, his offspring, his descendants. These great things would obviously be accomplished well into the future over the course of centuries and millennia. But in order to unpack our passage, Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18, and what God is promising to Abraham concerning his offspring, numerous descendants, triumph over enemies, blessing to all the world, in order to unpack this, we need to ask a question. Who is Abraham's seed? Who is Abraham's offspring? So I want to zoom out from verses 16 to 18 and look at the big picture. And in the big picture, what we learn is that Abraham has four seeds or four lines of descendants. I'm not saying that all four lines of descendants are in view in verses 16 to 18, but it is helpful to see the bigger picture before we zoom in onto the promises of chapter 22. The first line of Abraham's descendants is all of his physical descendants, not through Isaac and Jacob. Look at chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. The Lord told Abraham, this is when when Sarah told him to kick Ishmael out. Verses 12 and 13, the Lord is speaking to Abraham and, and he said, Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, that's in reference to Ishmael, because he is your offspring. Did you catch that? Ishmael is Abraham's physical offspring. But he is not the offspring associated with the covenant promises. After Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah, and they had six sons. Looking ahead to the next generation, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, but Esau was not the offspring associated with the covenant promises. So the Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and all the descendants of Keturah's six sons are Abraham's physical descendants, not through Isaac and Jacob. They are Abraham's offspring, but they are not the ones through whom Abraham's offspring is named. The second line of Abraham's descendants is all of his physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob. The physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob are later referred to as the children of Israel. The Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. All 12 tribes of Israel were physical descendants of Abraham and were party to the covenant promises. The third line of Abraham's descendants is a subset of the second line, namely the physical descendants leading to the Messiah. Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, and so on, all the way down until you get to the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And, 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 and this takes us back to Genesis 3.15 when God pronounced judgment upon the serpent. Do you remember what he said? 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From Genesis 3.15 onward, we are looking for the woman's promised offspring who will strike the head of the serpent. In the midst of all the storylines and activities in the book of Genesis, special attention is continually given to this special promised seed line, that special line of descendants that will ultimately lead to the promised son, the serpent slayer, who will remove the curse and restore mankind to the blessing of God. This promised son is Abraham's seed. The fourth line of Abraham's descendants is his spiritual descendants. The mere fact of physical descent from Abraham is no guarantee of the true blessedness of knowing God and is no guarantee of being a recipient of God's steadfast love. Paul puts the matter clearly in Romans chapter 9. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Romans 9, verses 6 and 7. Over and against those who put their confidence in the flesh, a true Israelite, a true Jew, is a human being who has a heart for God, as Romans 2, 28 and 29 says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Abraham's spiritual descendants are all those who share his faith in the Lord and who show themselves to be in right relationship with the Lord through heartfelt obedience to him. John the Baptist blasted the prominent Jews of his day, and he warned them not to put any confidence in their physical descent from Abraham. You brood of vipers, he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Abraham's spiritual sons and daughters are those who repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and as a result bear good fruit. Speaking to Jew and Gentile alike, Paul said, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, Genesis 3-7. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, Galatians 3-29. So let's review. Line number one. Abraham's physical descendants, not through Isaac and Jacob. Line number two, Abraham's physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob. Line number three, Abraham's physical descendants leading to the Messiah. Line number four, Abraham's spiritual descendants, those who have faith in the Messiah. That leads to the next question. Which descendants are in view in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 to 18? In the context of chapters 21 and 22, we can be confident that verses 16 to 18 is related to God's covenant promises that will be extended to and through Isaac in the subsequent chapters. And, and, and 
Chapter 21 set us up for that with the casting out of Ishmael. So even though Ishmael was Abraham's offspring, he was cast out in chapter 21, and specifically, we were specifically told that through Isaac shall Abraham's offspring be named. So Abraham's non-Israelite descendants, including the Ishmaelites and the Edomites, are not in view in verses 16 to 18. The other three lines of descendants are all in view to one degree or another, so let's walk through that. Regarding Abraham's physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob, a genuine and specific fulfillment of God's promises concerning Abraham's offspring took place when the children of Israel became a large nation and then entered and occupied the land of Canaan. The promise of Genesis chapter 15, which ties into all this, is very clear in this regard. Uh, Genesis 15, 5, the Lord said to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And then in verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then in verse 18, the Lord said to Abram, to your offspring I give this land. So clearly, the children of Israel entering the promised land 400 years later is a fulfillment of verses 16 to 18. But if, if the physical nation of Israel is the only line of descendants in view in verses 16 to 18, then the hindsight of biblical history leaves us with the sense that the whole thing is very underwhelming. Why? Because physical Israel only possessed the gate of its enemies while it remained faithful to the Lord. But eventually Israel went the path of disobedience. The northern tribes fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., the, the southern tribes fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and then after some more ups and downs over the course of centuries, eventually Jerusalem was decimated by the Romans in 70 A.D. Because of its unfaithfulness, physical Israel failed to be a light to the nations. In fact, one of the prophetic rebukes against Israel is that it had become just like the pagan nations that surrounded it. Instead of mediating the blessing of God to the nations, Israel mimicked the nations and fell under the same judgment. And so in terms of the covenant promises, physical Israel fizzles out. The apostle Paul declares in Romans chapter 9, verses 27 to 29, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the, listen carefully to this language, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Romans 9, verses 27 to 29. The failure of physical Israel directs our attention to Abraham's other two lines of descendants, which are the two most important lines. We can be confident 
that Abraham's line of descendants leading to the Messiah is in view for a reason that will become really obvious in a moment. But first, we need to dig into the, the grammar of the word offspring. The word offspring or seed in verses 17 and 18 is the translation of a singular noun. Any translation that uses the word descendants is unfortunate because it conceals the singularity of the noun that is being translated. Offsprings or seeds would be plural nouns, but offspring or seed is a singular noun. Of course, a singular noun can be understood in a collective sense. Uh, The simplest way to illustrate this is in Genesis 22, verse 17, the sand that is on the seashore. By the way, if you're wondering, why am I doing this right now? But when we get to Galatians 3, you'll see the payoff, so hang with me. Sand is a singular noun, but sand doesn't mean a single grain of sand. Do you understand? Sand, a singular noun, denotes millions of grains of sand. So sand is a singular noun, but it should be understood as a collective singular, a singular noun that incorporates many into it. Offspring or seed, singular, should be understood as a collective singular when we are told that Abraham's offspring will be multiplied as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Abraham's offspring is a collective singular that encompasses innumerable descendants. So the singular noun allows for it to be understood in a collective sense, but the singular noun also allows for it to be understood in a focused sense on one individual. So with this grammar lesson in mind, turn to Galatians chapter 3, because now we are ready to hear Paul's exposition of Genesis chapter 22. Uh, Really, this is his exposition of chapters 12 to 22, and I'm going to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 29. I obviously don't have time to exposit Paul's exposition in Galatians 3, but I want you to hear Galatians 3 as Paul's exposition of Genesis chapters 12 to 22. Okay, so here we go. Just, just, just let this soak in, into your hearts and minds. Starting in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Notice three things. Number one, God's promises concerning Abraham and Abraham's offspring were ultimately promises to one of Abraham's descendants, namely the Messiah, Christ Jesus our Lord. Number two, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles, is the fulfillment of, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because Christ Jesus is the promised offspring through whom blessing comes to all the world. Number three, Paul retains the significance of the collective singular. Did you see what he did? Even though Christ is Abraham's promised offspring, nevertheless, those of us who belong to Christ are also Abraham's promised offspring. Isn't that what it says in Galatians 3.29? Where the word offspring is, again, a singular noun. God views his redeemed people as a singular entity, albeit with many members, and yet this singular entity has one head, one king, one savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in Christ... The Abrahamic promises and the Abrahamic blessings descend upon us. Therefore, now this, this is where, this, I, I hope this really encourages and strengthens us as a, a church family. In light of all this, we can confidently say that in Christ Jesus, the reality of Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18, is fulfilled in the church which consists of Abraham's line of spiritual descendants. All Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus constitute, according to Ephesians 2, 19-22, the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him we also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. By God's redeeming grace, we are the great and holy nation stemming from Abraham, a mighty throng of faithful believers from every tribe and language and people and nation, purchased and purified by the blood of the Lamb. Our number is vast, even as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, so that when John got a peek into the future, he beheld 
in Revelation 7, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. By God's redeeming grace, the triumph of the church is inevitable. As our Lord does indeed possess the gate of his enemies, so his people share in his victory. Our Lord has disarmed the rulers and authorities, Colossians 2.15. By his death, he destroyed the devil, Hebrews 2.14. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, 2 Timothy 1.10. After his vicarious death and victorious resurrection, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, 1 Peter 3.22. As the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly and, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion Ephesians 1 20 to 21 so has the father made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus Ephesians 2 5 and 6. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth has commissioned us to go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19, because he is the promised offspring through whom all the nations shall be blessed. Therefore, all people groups everywhere should trust Jesus as the one and only mediator who brings the blessing of salvation to sinners who are under the curse. By Christ's commission, we are authorized and sent to bear witness to his gracious salvation. God has declared to the Messiah and to the Messiah's people, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul applies that to his own ministry, quoting Isaiah 49.6. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8.12, and those who believe in him are sons of light, John 12, 36, and have the light of life, John 8, 12, and thus we become light reflectors whom Jesus calls the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. The church's witness to the Lord and the proclamation of his saving grace is our fundamental and necessary task. And the church's triumph is certain, for our Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. Even as the Lord possesses the gate of his enemies, so the Lord's people possess the gate of our Lord's enemies. Even those things that appear to be obstacles and setbacks are, in fact, part of our procession to final glory. Paul wrote in Romans 8, in all these things, in tribulation and distress, and persecution, and famine, and nakedness, and danger. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8, 37. Why? Because the crucified lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of the woman, has conquered, and nothing will ever, ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And our serpent-crushing Lord says to his faithful bride, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Romans 16, 20. Brothers and sisters, 
Genesis 22, 16 to 18, tells us what the church is. In Christ Jesus, we are a blessed, innumerable, and triumphant people who declare God's gracious salvation through Jesus Christ to every nation on earth. And we must teach the nations to observe all that our King commands. And you're part of it, brother. You're part of it, sister. Don't settle for lesser things. We should be encouraged and strengthened in view of such a high calling. And yet we must not pursue our mission with swagger and self-confidence. Why? Because we follow the one who conquered through the cross, through opposition and rejection, through suffering and sacrifice and death. We must follow in his footsteps. We must lay down our life in this world for the sake of advancing the kingdom of our Lord. We must be willing to suffer loss so that others might live, and we must be eager to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And the question is, will we follow in his triumphant train? Listen to the words of a hymn from the early 19th century. It's a beautiful message. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar. Who follows in his train? Who bears his cup of woe, triumphant over pain? Who patient bears his cross below? He follows in his train. The martyr first, whose eagle eye could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save, like him with pardon on his tongue in midst of mortal pain, he prayed for them that did the wrong. Who follows in his train? A glorious band, the chosen few, on whom the Spirit came. Twelve valiant saints, their hope they knew, and mocked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their necks, the death to feel. Who follows in their train? A noble army, men and boys, the matron and the maid, around the Savior's throne rejoice in robes of light arrayed. They climbed the steep ascent of heaven through peril, toil, and pain. O oh God, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would learn to see ourselves rightly in light of Scripture and in light of all that our Lord has accomplished on our behalf. Father, I pray that you would strengthen this particular congregation to declare the word of the Lord to the Oxford Hills. Father, we pray that you would soften hearts and lead bankrupt lives to discover the blessing of God, eternal salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.